often. We normally do that after scripture reading, but today's passage is a little more sensitive and challenging. And so, again, kids can be dismissed now. If you'd like to follow along, I'm reading from Hosea chapter 2, verses 1 through 13. Call your brothers, my people, and your sisters, compassion. Rebuke your mother, rebuke her, for she is not my wife, and I am not her husband. Let her remove the promiscuous look from her face and her adultery from between her breasts. Otherwise, I will strip her naked and expose her as she was on the day of her birth. I will make her like a desert, like a parched land, and I will let her die of thirst. I will have no compassion on her children because they are the children of promiscuity. Yes, their mother is promiscuous. She conceived them and acted shamefully. For she thought, I will follow my lovers, the men who... Give me my food and water, my wool and flax, my oil and drink. Therefore, this is what I will do. I will block her way with thorns. I will enclose her with a wall so that she cannot find her paths. She will pursue her lovers but not catch them. She will look for them but not find them. Then she will think, I will go back to my former husband, for then it was better for me than now. She does not recognize that it is I who gave her the grain, the new wine and the fresh oil. I lavished silver and gold on her, which they used for Baal. Therefore, I will take back my grain in its time and my new wine in its season. I will take away my wool and linen, which were to cover her nakedness. Now I will expose her shame in the sight of her lovers, and no one will rescue her from my power. I will put an end to all her celebrations, her feasts, new moons and Sabbaths, all her festivals. I will devastate her vines and fig trees. She thinks that these are her wages that her lovers have given her. I will turn them into a thicket, and the wild animals will eat them. And I will punish her for the days of the Baals to which she burned incense. She put on her rings and her jewelry and followed her lovers, but she forgot me. This is the Lord's declaration, the word of the Lord. Good morning. I can think of no better way to follow the reading of that particular scripture than with a Disney reference. (laughs) If, If we cast our eyes back and think about the Disney movies from the 80s and the 90s, they had a different tone than some of the Disney movies we have now. And I think one of the underrated villains of the Disney movie empire comes from The Little Mermaid. Ursula, the sorceress, that that octopus. Remember, she was the one that if you had a a great need, that you just had this dream, this, this vision for something that you could not see how it could possibly be, she could help you get it. And she had such a heart for these poor, unfortunate souls. You know, they came to her in need. This one longing to be thinner, that one wants to get the girl. Does she help them? Yes, indeed. But as the song continues, and as we see the way that Ursula works her magic, her, her assistance, her help, comes at a terrible cost. And thankfully, the, the heroine of A Little Mermaid does not succumb to the evil plans of Ursula. But if you remember the video from when she was singing that song, it was nightmarish. 
because she collected those poor, unfortunate souls. They had a dream of a better life, and she let them pursue that dream until they didn't meet the requirements that she had set forth, and she took that poor, unfortunate soul, and it was there in her cave, writhing and desperate and alone. She was a villain. She was one who was the worst type of villain because she preyed on those who thought they could have a better life through her magic. All of us, at times, I think lose sight of what it is that God does for us. We start maybe not chasing after what Ursula, the witch from The Little Mermaid, can offer us, but we start to fall for the lie of a better life, a better opportunity, a better strategy, a better way. And we forget that God is the one who provides every good gift. We forget who he truly is. It is so easy to make him just one of many gods on our shelf, to reduce him to a convenience, to reduce him to a Sunday morning and a Wednesday afternoon activity. It's a temptation. As we look at this text from Hosea, I have something bold to say that is hard to hear, and I would say even harder to say, but I believe it's true. Israel is not alone in her tendency to commit spiritual adultery. We can all lose sight of what it is we are called to know, who we are called to love, and what we are called to be. So the question I have before us as we're looking at this challenging text this morning, how can we respond when we realize we have lost sight of God and put our trust in the wrong place? And this is a difficult text. Uh, Preparing for this sermon has not been easy. I have spent many hours wrestling in prayer, wrestling with the text, asking myself the question, whose bright idea was it to preach Hosea for the season of Lent? (laughs) Well, as I reflect on it, we dismissed the kiddos early because of the sensitive language that's in this text. And last week, on Family Sunday, I had to dance around some very delicate issues. The words that are uncomfortable to read are easy to skip over. And the Holy Spirit gave us this little book. He gave it to us for a reason. And there's something for us to learn from it. So before we get into Hosea 2, I just want to remind us of Hosea 1, this incredibly shocking call that God gives his prophet, telling his prophet to take for himself a woman of promiscuity, an adulteress, a prostitute, that he is to marry and love and care for this woman who is going to betray him and his faithfulness time and time again. And Hosea does it. He marries Gomer. He enters into a covenant relationship with this woman that is destined to break his heart, and we don't have to go too far to see how his heart gets broken. Hosea and Gomer together have a boy named Jezreel, whose name means scattered or even destruction. And then we hear about two more children, children that are Gomer's, but they're not ascribed to Hosea. So we believe that they may be daughters and sons of promiscuity, that they are 
her children from other lovers than her husband. And they were named Lo-Ruhama, which meant no compassion, no mercy, and Lo-Ami, which meant not my people. These heavy, prophetic names for this prophet who is called to take on this heartbreaking task of modeling for the people of Israel what the people of Israel were doing to God. So as we continue this morning, starting with chapter 2, verse 2, if you have your Bibles open up there, we are going to see the metaphor lived out. So I'm going to be going back and forth kind of seamlessly as I'm talking about this text. Sometimes I'll be talking about Homer and Homer, <laughs> Gomer and Hosea. Sometimes I'll be talking about God and Israel. Because this relationship that Hosea has with this woman is a picture of what the people of Israel, the faithless people of Israel, are doing to the God who is in a covenant relationship with them. So as much as our hearts break for this prophet called into this incredibly difficult ministry, our hearts should break all the more because that's just a picture. It's just an illustration of the heartbreak of the covenant-keeping God loving and caring for his covenant-breaking people, Israel. So it starts with a lawsuit. And we're going to see the progression through the text. It's going to start with this, this lawsuit. And then we're going to get a description of their situation. And then we're going to close with a sentence passed down by a just judge. But looking at the lawsuit, that opening language, rebuke your mother, rebuke her, Take up the case with her. Challenge her. Contend with her. It's, it's legal language that's being used. And he says, rebuke your mother, for she is not my wife, and I am not her husband. If we think through Scripture and we hear the language of the covenant-keeping God, he says, I am your God, and you are my people. But now he's using language that sounds like the language of divorce. But the statement is not a statement of divorce, as we're going to see, because immediately God gives Israel the opportunity to turn back. So what we have instead, for she is not my wife and I am not her husband, is a statement of fact that's based on the wife's immoral behavior. So the wife is literally Gomer, Hosea's wife, but it's also literally the people of Israel. They have been behaving in a way that breaks covenant. They are behaving as though they are not covenant partners with Yahweh. The point of this opening verse is not that God is severing his relationship with Israel through the language of divorce, but rather that he desires that this relationship that has been severed because of Israel's sin will be restored. Immediately, for she is not my wife and I am not her husband. Let her remove the promiscuous look from her face and her adultery from between her breasts. Otherwise, I will. See, he's giving her the opportunity to repent. He's giving Israel the opportunity to change the direction that they've been going. And he's saying, if you don't do this, otherwise, this judgment's coming. But I desire as your God, that you would turn back to me away from these false gods that you have been worshiping. 
This is a call to repentance. This is, this is shocking. But Yahweh's grief leads to this, this invitation to repent rather than to affect a divorce. That's not what he wants. Well, what is meant by let her remove the promiscuous look from her face and her adultery from between her breasts? If we're talking about Gomer, this could be any number of different things. It could be her, her attitude and her demeanor when she's with other men, and it could be the jewelry that she wears that's reminiscent of the cultic jewelry worn by the temple prostitutes for Baal. But when we think about Israel, remove the pagan culture of Canaan from my landscape. It's sexual fertility cult. The temples are dotting the landscape of Israel. Remove it. Remove this adultery from the land. Otherwise, before we get to the otherwise, let's get a, a more complete picture of the extent of Israel's sin. And to do that, we're going to look at the historical book of 2 Kings. In 2 Kings, Chapter 17, starting in verse 9, we get a picture of what Israel had been doing and why they were about to fall, this prophecy from Hosea. Starting in verse 9, the Israelites secretly did things against the Lord their God that were not right. They built high places in all their towns from watchtower to fortified city. They set up for themselves sacred pillars and Asherah poles on every high hill and under every green tree. Just to be clear, this is bad. They are literally building temples and worship spots for Asherah and Baal, these fertility gods and goddesses that they're giving credit for the fruit that God has been granting them. Verse 11, they burned incense there in all the high places, just like the nations that the Lord had driven out before them had done. They did evil things, angering the Lord. They served idols, although the Lord told them, you must not do this. Still, I, I hear that still, and I want you to hear the long-suffering love of God for his people. They had done evil. They had not listened to him. Still. Still the Lord warned Israel and Judah through every prophet and every seer saying, Turn from your evil ways and keep my commands and statutes according to the whole law I commanded to your ancestors and sent to you through my servants, the prophets. But they would not listen. Instead, they became obstinate like their ancestors who did not believe the Lord their God. They rejected his statutes and his covenant he had made with them and their ancestors. They rejected the warnings he had given them. They followed worthless idols and became worthless themselves. Following the surrounding nations, the Lord had commanded them not to imitate. They abandoned all the commands of the Lord their God. They made cast images for themselves, two calves and an Asherah pole. They bowed in worship to all the stars in the sky and served Baal. They sacrificed their sons and daughters in the fire. Do you hear how far they have fallen? They sacrificed their sons and daughters in the fire and practiced divination and interpreted omens. They devoted themselves. That's worship language. They devoted themselves to do what was evil in the Lord's sight 
and angered him. This is an unfaithful people. I, I want you to picture the place where they were to worship Yahweh, the temple. And if you remember the illustration from last week, they built idols. They made bulls. They made calves out of gold and silver, and they put them in the temple. In one of these temples, they placed this bull. They named it Yah. They named it God. So surely if we call the idol by the right name, it'll count as right worship. Rationalizing and justifying what they were doing. Otherwise, I will strip her naked and expose her as she was on the day of her birth. This is a strong metaphor. Israel is to be deprived of that which is necessary for life as a nation, and Israel will perish as a result of it. I will make her like a desert, and like a parched land, I will let her die of thirst. So, the Baals, this, this pantheon of pagan deities, were associated with, with rain and fertility. And you hear how he's reversing this. I will make her like a desert, like a parched land. She will die of thirst. This would be a clear sign that Baal is powerless. He has no power. Throughout this lawsuit, God shifts between the threat of punishment and the hope of restoration. I want you to sense that. Harsh language of judgment is coming, but there's always this opportunity. Turn. Otherwise, come. He's inviting them in the midst of his judgment to experience his mercy. And this judgment to make Israel like a desert. If we go all the way back to the covenant language and we look at Leviticus 26, verse 3 says this, If you follow my statutes and faithfully observe my commands, I will give you rain at the right time and the land will yield its produce and the trees of the field will bear their fruit. If we scroll down, scroll down, my digital copy here. <laughs> As I scroll over to verse 19, or verse 18, but if after these things you will not obey me, I will proceed to discipline you seven times for your sins. I will break down your strong pride. I will make your sky like iron and your land like bronze. No water is getting through an iron sky. No crops are going to be able to penetrate a bronze land. Your strength will be used up for nothing, he says. Your land will not yield its produce, and the trees of the land will not bear their fruit. So we see God is being faithful to who he is. He told them, if you follow me, the rains will come and the land will be abundant. If you turn from me, the sky will dry up and the land will wither, and you will have nothing. He's being true to his character. So moving from this lawsuit that's been presented, let's look at the situation that we see that they're in. Verse 4, I will have 
no compassion on her children because they are the children of promiscuity. All right, so should we talk about the children of Gomer or should we talk about the children of Israel? The Scripture is for both. I will have no compassion on her children. Israel has betrayed me. And so down to the individual child of Israel, I will show no compassion because they have not followed me. Societally, Gomer's brood of illegitimate children would have been detested because of what they stood for. Hosea's audience would understand the revulsion that Yahweh feels to this brood of illegitimate children in Israel as they follow false gods. Yes, verse 5, their mother is promiscuous. She conceived them and acted shamefully, for she thought, I will follow my lovers, the men who give me my food and water, my wool and flax, my oil and drink. So Yahweh had a reputation in the ancient Near East. He was the God of hosts. He was the God of war. He was the God of military might and conquering. This is the reputation he had. And the Israelites started listening to the voices of the Babylonians and the Assyrians and those around them and started hearing about, well, Asherah is, is the God of, goddess of fertility and, and Baal is the God of, of rain and fruit. So you should worship them as well. And this is where you'll get your grain. This is where you get your oil. This is when, how your animals will be able to yield wool for you. You sacrifice to them for those purposes and Yahweh for the purposes of war and the military. And so they fell for this lie. I will follow my lovers. I will follow my false gods. Those who give me my food and water, my wool and flax, my oil and drink. They fell for the lie of Ursula in the cave. That she's the one who can provide the good life. It's a lie. It's always been a lie. The, these idols of Baal and Asherah, as we just read in 2 Kings, they are worthless. And those who follow them become worthless. So we move from the situation to the sentence. God is a just judge. And if his mercy will not be accepted, his justice must be meted out. Therefore, verse 6, this is what I will do. I will block her way with thorns. I will enclose her with a wall so that she cannot find her paths. Israel has been going her own way and choosing paths that were not the straight paths that God had set forth for her. Israel was going her own direction and God says, I'm going to hem her in. I'm going to use these thorn thickets to force her direction. So in a way, as we read this, I want us to hear this not as a punishment, but as a mercy. This is protection. God is acting in grace here, not anger. This, this hedge containing her like a farm animal is for her own good and for the good of their relationship. It will protect her from straying off and returning to these false gods. I've, I've talked up here before about 
are alpacas and llama and, and goats and chickens and the strange collection of animals that live in my backyard. We have fences in our backyard. And these fences are ingenious because they're not fixed. They are expenses that we are able to move easily so we can paddock them in one section of the yard. Or when we have delivery of mulch coming, we can create a line to keep them in a safe space so the trucks can come and go without harming the animals or the animals getting out. We build a hedge around them to protect them. This is what God is saying he will do for his people. This is what I will do so that she cannot find her dangerous paths. Have you ever felt hemmed in? Have you ever felt frustrated that things simply weren't going your way? I'm not saying that this is universally true, but sometimes I suspect that that frustration comes about because we are trying to attain a life where we don't need God. And God is building a hedge. He is protecting us from going down a road that will lead to destruction. What if our frustration is God's gracious pursuit of us? Are we willing to look at the discipline of the Lord as one of the most loving things that he can do for us? He goes on in verse 7. She will pursue her lovers and not catch them. She will look for them and not find them. Then she will think, I will go back to my former husband, for then it was better for me than now. I want you to look at that first sentence of verse 7. She will pursue her lovers but not catch them. Hosea does not depict Israel as a harlot who waits for the lovers to come to her door. He portrays her as an adulterous woman who shamelessly and brazenly runs after her lovers. This is what Israel has become. Shamelessly and brazenly pursuing false gods. Well, God is drying up the land. Demonstrating that Baal has no power. God is hemming them in, hedging them in. Well, I will go back to my former husband, for it was better for me then than now. The grass is always greener. Baal, Baal is not listening. He has no power. So Israel will turn back to her first love. God does this so that the people will realize that the God of Israel, not the Baals, the God of Israel is the one who produces the fertility of grain and wine and oil. Baal and Asherah have nothing to do with it. Verse 8, the point is made. She does not recognize that it is I who gave her the grain, the new wine, and the fresh oil. I lavished silver and gold upon her. And how does the verse end? which they used for Baal. The picture that comes to my mind when I take this back to the, the reality that Hosea is living out this message with his wife, Gomer. It's as though she goes off, she chases after another lover, and she is staying with him. And Hosea goes down the street, 
knocks on the door. A man opens the door and says, what do you want? Hosea, his arms full of food and supplies and groceries, says, is Gomer here? Yeah, what of it? I've brought this for her so that she would lack nothing. All along, God is the one who provides. Even in her unfaithfulness. Remember, this time when Hosea is writing is one of the most prosperous times in the northern kingdom's history. They say as prosperous, if not more prosperous, than the days of Solomon. God was blessing them. God was blessing them, and they were saying, Thank you, Baal. Thank you, Asherah. We'll get around to you, God. God is being forsaken by his people. And now justice comes. Verse 9. Therefore, I will take back my grain in its time and my new wine in its season. I will take away my wool and linen, which were to cover her nakedness. Notice the pronouns there. I will take back my grain, my wine, my wool and linen. The only thing his wife possesses is her nakedness, her lack. She has nothing. Israel has nothing without the provision of Yahweh. Verse 10, now, now I will expose her shame in the sight of her lovers. Israel's prostitution of herself to Baal will be seen for what it really is. And no one will rescue her from my power. I will put an end to all her celebrations, her feasts, her new moons and Sabbaths and all her festivals. Think about these festivals. What were they for? The the hypocrisy of Israel to worship and sacrifice to these false gods and still observe the feasts and the Sabbaths and the new moons of the Israelite calendar, which were designed to thank God for his provision. They were thanking the gods for the provision. I will devastate her vines and her fig trees. The the vines and fig trees throughout Scripture are a picture of God's abundant provision and presence. I will devastate her vines and fig trees. She thinks that these are her wages that her lovers have given her. I will turn them into a thicket, and the wild animals will eat them. And I will punish her. I will punish her for the days of the Baals to which she burned incense. She put on her rings and her jewelry and followed her lovers. And I want you to hear the heartbreak of the prophet Hosea. And I want you to hear the heartbreak of Yahweh, the covenant-keeping God of Israel. She put on her rings and her jewelry and followed her lovers, but she forgot me, the one who has given her everything, the one who has supplied her every need, the one who stands for her, holding on to her even as she is running and pulling away from me. She has forgotten me. It is so easy for us as human beings, not just the Israelites, it is so easy for us to misunderstand where where life and prosperity and meaning and identity and value and hope for the future 
comes from. We live in an individualistic, materialistic society where we are constantly being tempted to depend on our human abilities rather than God. Deuteronomy chapter 8, you may say to yourself, my power and my own ability have gained this wealth for me. But remember that the Lord your God gives you the power to gain wealth in order to confirm his covenant he swore to your ancestors as it is today. I have had moments in my life where I looked at myself and thought, I am pretty amazing. I have built this career for myself. I have accomplished this thing. And I was celebrating my strength and my ability. God is reminding us through the words of the prophet Hosea that anything that you accomplish, you are only able to accomplish because God has given you the power to accomplish it. All that we have, all that I am and all that I have is His. I'm just called to steward it. It's just on loan. Where do we think prosperity comes from? A central theme of Hosea 2 is that God is the only source who can meet our needs. Any attempt to replace him in his proper role is a prostitution of our loyalties. And it's so easy to do. In the Christian church in the West, it is very easy for us to blend the values of our individualistic personal freedom first, individual rights, materialistic culture with the biblical message to shuffle the two together by reinterpreting the Bible to fit or support a worldview that is inconsistent with the Bible itself. It's as though we craft a golden calf and we put it in the temple to worship Yahweh through the golden calf. It's a temptation that's present in all of our hearts, and I am not pointing my fingers at this congregation. I'm not, if anything, I'm pointing fingers at myself because I'm aware of my own heart. But I believe it to be true of all of us who wrestle with sin, who wrestle with temptation, that at times we believe our own press. At times, we take credit for what God has done in us and through us. At times, we become the idol in our own life. At times, beautiful things that God has given us as gifts, family, can become an idol. It's just a twist of perspective, a twist of priority, and we put something in a place where only God belongs. So what can we do? What can we do when we recognize, I've forgotten God's place? I've been operating in my own strength with blinders on for so long, I have lost sight of the fact that God is the one who gives every good gift. What can we do? Well, in true preacher fashion, I have three R's for you. Remember, repent, and realign. Remember. Remember who God is and what He has done. Remember who He has revealed Himself to be through this book and who He continues to reveal Himself to be through our lives and the testimony of the church. He is a God who has done great things, is doing great things, 
and has yet to do an amazing thing when the sun returns. Remember who God is. Remember where our hope truly lives. Repent. Repent of self-sufficiency and misplaced hope. The idea that I can do it. The idea that I'm so clever that I can manage my 401k in such a way to ensure my comfort in the future. Oh, that's a gift from God. Insofar as you have that capacity, it's a gift from Him. And He alone should receive the glory, not you. Repent of being a thief of glory. And realign. Realign our hearts in thanksgiving. If we are thankful, if we are men and women who are characterized by our thanksgiving to God, it's hard to commit idolatry. Because we're giving thanks to the one from whom all things come. And this morning, we have two opportunities to very practically realign our hearts to thanksgiving. The first is immediately after the sermon. Immediately after the sermon, Earl and the team, they're going to lead us in a song, and we're going to have the opportunity to give back to God what he has given to us. It's an opportunity to worship and recognize he is the one who has provided us with everything we have and to realign our hearts in thanksgiving, to give thanks through giving. And then we're going to gather around this table to see and to be reminded of what God has done for us. Because every single one of us, <laughs> when we read a book like Hosea, we want to identify with Hosea. The bad news is the text doesn't let us do that. Hosea is identified with the God of Israel. We are identified with the people of Israel. In the book of Hosea, we are Gomer. We are the adulterous, unfaithful wife. And when we come to this table, we are given the reminder of the bridegroom, Jesus, who came so that we might, despite our fickle hearts, have relationship with the Father and be restored in our relationship with Him. We approach this table just as we approach giving with thanksgiving because He alone is God. We are not. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we praise You. We worship You for You are the giver of every good gift but even if you had not given us a thing, you would still be worthy of our worship for you are good, you are holy, you are majestic, you are just. We thank you for your mercy to us that when our hearts wander, you frustrate our wandering by hemming us in. You remind us of who you are and what you have called us to be. So we thank you for the difficult words of Hosea chapter 2. These words so filled with brokenheartedness and judgment that your judgment comes from a place of love with a desire to extend mercy. You are our God. We are your people. Not because of anything we've done, but because of everything you've done in spite of us and for us 
and through us. We commit ourselves to you as your sons and daughters. In the name of the Son and by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let us all stand.